Hey everyone, uh, this is Cece. And this is Claire. And welcome back to our podcast edition. Right now we are doing our afternoon edition of series six. Um, today we have a special guest with us today. Um, his name is Tony and he is on the call with us. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi everyone and uh, thanks for inviting me here today. My name is Tony and uh, I'm a lecturer at Columbia University in New York City and uh, I teach computer science and classes in artificial intelligence and robotics and I'm excited to share some of what I've learned and some of what I'm doing with all of you. How is it like living in New York City? Because I know you mentioned that you teach in New York City. Yeah, so, um, so I grew up in the Bay Area. I grew up in San Francisco. Uh, so in that sense, you know, we're I, I, I'm in a coastal sort of liberal urban setting in both my childhood and right now. So there's some similarities there, right? Um, San Francisco is multicultural, it's cosmopolitan, and much of the same can be said about New York. Um, in terms of differences, of course, New York is a lot more tense, it's a lot more populous. Um, there are a lot more sort of going on in terms of activities and um, and variety of jobs and uh, entertainment, I would say. Um, there's always something to do. Uh, there's a lot of different food options, um, Broadway uh, shows. Of course, this is all pre-COVID. But yeah, there's it's, it's, it's sort of like SF, but maybe on steroids, I would say. <laughs> another difference that you might ask about is the transportation system. It's quite different. Um, New York City has an extensive subway and train system um, so that a lot of people actually rely on it rather than driving around. Oh, that's pretty interesting. To be honest, I've always wanted to go to New York City. Me too. I want to live in New York <laughs> City too. I went there when I was um, younger, I think. I went there in the summer though, so it was very rainy and humid. It was. Yeah, yeah. Which was, like, I didn't really expect that humidity, but... Yeah. I've never been there in the f- like the winter where it's like super snowy and cold. Snowy and cold, yeah. That's true. I mean, that's another thing that I didn't mention. So we actually have seasons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So there's definitely a huge difference between summers and winters. And winters it will be cold and sometimes snowy, and then summers are often pretty hot. I mean, not as hot as like the south, but you know, hot enough so that you need AC. Um, and humid much of the time. But you get used to it, and it's nice to enjoy the different seasons, I think. That's, nice. That's pretty cool. At least you guys have seasons, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you mentioned, like, food and sites. I, um, I'm i not sure if it's as popular in New York, but Chinatown in San Francisco is pretty um, prevalent. prevalent in, like, uh-huh. the city life and, like, tourist life, I guess. Yeah. Is it the same in New York? I think so. And um, maybe it's, it's, it's similar, but it's also different. So in New York City, there are um, multiple Chinatowns. Oh. And I think each of which, I would say, is actually bigger than, say, SF's main Chinatown, or like the Richmond, or the Sunset. So I, I think SF, you can also say, has multiple Chinatowns. Oakland has a Chinatown, for example. Um, in New York City alone, there are also multiple Chinatowns. And I think each of them is quite big and quite diverse. Um, so, as um, to be more specific, uh, I think the Bay Area is predominantly Cantonese, at least in the city, mm-hmm. and then maybe you'll have a, more mainlanders or more Taiwanese people as you go outside of, to the South Bay or to the East Bay. Um, 
I would say that in New York City, there's actually more diversity of um, Chinese immigrants in our Chinatowns. Um, so there are there's a sizable Fujianese population, for example, mm. um, alongside the Cantonese population in the main Chinatown, and then outside in Queens, um, we have a lot of Chinese from the northern parts of China, um, as well as Taiwanese people as well. Um, so that translates to a lot of the different food options, which is really cool because, you know, you can sample all bunch of different foods from different regions of China, as well as uh, regions right outside the neighboring China. So there's a large Korean population, and when they mix, you also get, say, Korean Chinese food, which is really nice to have as well. Yeah. I remember, um, I don't know if you watch these YouTubers, but they're kind of like fun bros. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I remember they did uh, like an episode walking around all the like the towns like the a- uh-huh. a- East Asian yeah. towns with Aquafina. I think they had yeah, an episode yeah. of that. And that was pretty cool. Like, also, I mean, they seem to focus a lot on like I don't, it seems like it's very spread out. I guess like the towns. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't know. Is this geographically like New York is even. Although you said it's dense, is it bigger than San Francisco? Yeah, so it's it's denser, uh, I think. Uh, I think it is the densest city in the U.S. I'm not wrong about that, but it's also bigger. Um, it's 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 definitely bigger than San Francisco alone. Um, it's probably I wouldn't probably I'd probably not say that it's as big as like the Greater Bay Area. It's probably in the middle somewhere. Mm-hmm. But you could definitely drive or even get on the train, right? Um, for like over an hour from one point to the other and still be inside the city. Oh, wow. Um, and, and this is like, again, if you're taking the train, like there's no traffic. So <laughs> it speaks to how far or how large the geographic area of the city is. Yeah. I feel like the transportation in New York City is a lot more convenient than in the Bay Area. Is that right? It's a different culture, for sure. Um. So was living in New York one of the like uh, factors in deciding whether you're going to teach at Columbia or like uh, get that job? Yeah. So uh, again, this is sort of a fact, uh, a result of sort of my upbringing, right? Uh, the fact that I grew up in an urban coastal area. Um, I'd also like to work in a similar area if possible. Um, so New York being one of, you know, fitting that description, uh, fit the bill for me and the fact that I've not lived on the east coast properly before um, I sort of wanted to experience that for a little bit even if I don't ultimately stay here for you know, the next few decades or whatever right um, I'd like to at least try the lifestyle here I want to experience it here um, and again like it's interesting to compare and contrast the experience between the two coastal areas um, lots of similarities but also lots of differences yeah of course that sounds really cool um, you mentioned that you taught in New York, yeah. Um, what was it like getting there? Like, how did you, what was your path to teaching in New York, teaching computer science? So, in terms of teaching computer science, um, I think that, you know, I, I've taught before, right? I've taught in my undergrad, I've taught in grad school, uh, and I've been in computer science pretty much since. I started college, so all of that uh, has, all of that experience has helped me get to where I am today, and, um, you know, it's, 
all the experience actually does matter when you're teaching in front of a huge classroom, in front of a huge lecture hall. Um, so that all has been pretty straightforward. I mean, obviously, I'm still learning every day and every semester, but uh, in terms of like you know teaching at say Berkeley, where I went to my undergrad, versus teaching here, um, the experience is largely the same. So I think that uh, has been relatively constant um, throughout my career. And you know, in terms of getting sort of landing my position here and getting the interview, uh, that's that's a whole other kind of story. Like that's that's sort of um, the process I went through when I was did my academic interviews, and I was just lucky to get this opportunity and end up here. I think. If you'd like to elaborate on that story of how um, maybe from school to this job. So uh, just to back up a little bit, um, I did my undergrad at Berkeley. So again, Bay Area. Uh, went to grad school in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in Carnegie Mellon University. Um, that was the past five or six years or so. And then, you know, when I was close to graduating, I was uh, embarking on my job search um, for university teaching or um, you know, professor-related jobs. So that process. Um, it's sort of like applying to school all over again, uh, if, to be honest, because what you're doing is you're, you know, you're, you know, you're putting together your resume, you're putting together your, your applications, and then you're setting them out there to the different schools, and you're really only targeting, you know, the departments or the areas that you have an interest in. So just like when you're applying, if you're applying to grad school in a few years, you'll, you, you'll, you'll realize this, right? You'll you're only targeting schools that have um, a match with you. So, you know, I'm filling out all these applications. They're going all over the country. I was looking at schools not only on the East Coast, but also on the West Coast. Um, some maybe in the Midwest and more urban areas like Chicago. And it was a long process. You know, lots of essays, lots of Skype interviews, and then even some on-site interviews. Uh, that took maybe about three or four months before I eventually sort of landed on this and uh, agreed to come over here. That's pretty extensive. Um, so yeah. I also want to backtrack into your, um, you talked about undergrad, uh, you did undergrad at Berkeley, then grad at Carnegie Mellon. In general, <laughs> what do you think are some of the biggest differences between undergrad and grad? And this can be like, um, of course, academic difficulty, but also maybe culture yeah. and like um, mm-hmm. habits. So it's it's actually I would say it's actually quite different, and it, you know that also depends on whether you're pursuing a master's or a PhD or something else in grad school. So the undergrad experience, I think, it's. Um, there are some similarities even to high school, right? Because you're still taking classes, um, you're making friends with a bunch of your peers, uh, and you often partake in extracurricular activities uh, in undergrad. So people join clubs, they do different um, outreach groups, um, they do frats. You know, a lot of these different social activities come along with the college experience, which is really nice, right? Uh, it's part of growing up and sort of learning about yourself and others. In grad school, you know, that part is, it, I wouldn't say it's done, right? I wouldn't say that there's no more social kind of life anymore. But mm-hmm. in grad school, it is what you make of it. 
So in grad school, people are coming in from different backgrounds. People have different goals. And you're not necessarily following the same cohort from like a freshman year to a senior year. Right? People are coming in, they might have working experience. Some people might already have families. Um, people are at different stages of life. Um, and you might be taking some classes with some peers and then you might never see them again after that. So it's what you make of it, right? It's up to you. You have to take more of an effort to sort of establish uh, your social life. And at the same time, as you mentioned, right, the academic side is also a little bit different. So if you're doing a master's, you're still going to be taking classes, but of course those classes are going to be uh, typically more difficult, more in-depth, that may be more open-ended. If you're doing a PhD or if you're doing like a thesis in the master's, then there's a lot of uh, independent work, independent self-study. So instead of like where you have a class and you're doing an assignment or a project uh, and you're getting a grade for it, um, a lot of the self-study or this research project-oriented type of class is something where you have to sort of take initiative um, and sort of search the existing literature, search the existing field, uh, and try to come up with something novel on your own. So it's quite different, um, I would say, between undergrad and grad. I would even say that undergrad is more similar to high school than it is to grad school. Oh, interesting. <laughs> um, you mentioned you got your PhD at Carnegie Mellon, right? Yes. Um, what did you specifically research throughout your PhD, like in, on your path to getting your PhD? Yeah. So uh, my program was in robotics, um, so robotics is a broad field. Um, there's similarities. Robotics shares uh, aspects with computer science, but also uh, has aspects within, say, mechanical engineering or physics or electrical engineering. So robotics is very interdisciplinary, and specifically, I looked into um, the mechanics of robot locomotion. So uh, robots are, of course, physical objects, physical mechanisms. Um, unlike software programs, you actually can uh, interact with robots in the real world. And a lot of robots uh, that are being developed nowadays will be able to move. So whether they move on wheels or move on legs or move on move on the ground like like a snake or move in the water like a fish, um, robots uh, will often need to move or locomote to perform whatever tasks they're designed to do. So there's a lot of research into that. There's a lot of research into how to design the best types of movements available for these robots. Um, some of this research entails looking at corresponding biology. So they would be like animals or insects or fish or snakes and try to, to, to derive some inspirations from there. At the same time, we also want to make sure that we're designing these robots to locomote and to perform tasks that we want um, and not necessarily mimic the biology exactly, but to see what they're doing and try to improve upon that for our usage. Oh, I see. So it's kind of like a different type of adaptation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. I honestly haven't really heard about that before. That yeah. seems a lot I mean, robotics is... Sorry, go ahead. I was going <laughs> to... Just add, robotics is a growing field, uh, and there's a lot of work being done right now. So, and a lot of it is still sort of in the early stages. Yeah, and you can see that in like high school, right? Mm-hmm. A growth in robotics teams, like 
FTC, FRC. I don't know. A lot of our friends do <laughs> robotics. So yeah, <laughs> there's definitely like a growth now. Yeah, yeah. Do you like? Um, is that special speciality something that you focus on in teaching um, at Columbia, or do you teach more of a wide variety of classes? Yeah, so I think uh, I definitely have broadened my um, specialties and interest areas um, when when it comes to teaching, and this does tend to happen um, quite often. It doesn't always happen to everyone, but um, the the typical sort of trajectory is that you know when you're in grad school doing a PhD, you get really really specific, right? Um, you're sort of making a novel contribution to a very, very specific problem um, in the field, and you spend a lot of your energy doing that. Uh, and to be, you know, to be honest, most of the time, right, only a handful of people will actually care directly <laughs> about what you're doing. Um, then, when it comes time to say teach um, teach students or teach a broader audience, you need to be able to generalize. So, whether that means Taking what you've researched and you know teaching a more generalized version or teaching a more simple version of it, or just teaching sort of related classes, related topics as well. So I mentioned a lot about robot locomotion, but I also just teach a artificial intelligence, which um, is a much more general topic uh, than what I just described. So it's it's, it's good to be flexible uh, if you're in academia. It's good to sort of be in the know about what's going on in general, um, you know, both large and small. Hmm, I like that. So I see you have many different aspects of computer science that you can teach. Yeah. Um, so using that kind of perspective and, I guess, your knowledge, um, what are some, a- um, some aspirations you have for computer science? Like, what, are, what is some like, future growth you can see in that field? So I think computer science is um, definitely one of those fields that are that has been and still is attracting a lot of hype, um, and for good reason because it is growing very rapidly in um, a few different areas. And you know, in the past decade or so, I would say that one of the areas besides robotics that has really been gaining attraction is um, gaining attention is uh, the field of machine learning. So uh, the reason, there are a couple of reasons behind that. Uh, one is the sort of widening availability of data. Uh, so you know we're, we all use different social media sites, we all use different apps on our phone. Like it or not, all of these things are gathering lots and lots of data about us um, every single day. Um, as the world becomes more and more interconnected, and as we as humans um, sort of get into technology more and more, um, there's going to be more and more data available. So what do we do with this data? What, how do we make sense of all this data? Well, that's where machine learning comes in. So machine learning, the goal here is to take all of this data, take all of this information, and try to make some sense of it, whether that means um, drawing conclusions about, say, cause and effect of different things, or making predictions, or even things like you know, improving facial recognition in photos, right? Or improving speech recognition on 
time will continue to grow very rapidly in the next few years. But yeah, I get where you come from. Now that you said it, I know like, I guess one thing I really am into is like skincare or beauty industry. And there's been a lot of like machine learning and AI. Well, well they're not exactly the same same, but like startups mm-hmm. that are always happening. Yeah. Like using facial recognition to like kind of figure out what your best needs are or like mm-hmm. they the input you input data for you to like find a best product or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. <laughs> um, creepy oh. you too. <laughs> but yeah, that's where we're going nowadays, I think. Yeah. Um, now that we've gone through a little bit about like um, the future things, I guess let's talk about some current um, things like misconceptions i feel like there's always in every field there's always a misconception that the general public has about a certain thing um so in your opinion what is one misconception that people have about computer science field and it could be anything like yeah um so i think one uh, common misconception especially among people who are thinking about getting into computer science um, is that computer science is all about programming. Um, and in a sense, programming is definitely related to computer science because, uh, well, there, first of all, there is, within, within the field of computer science, there is uh, a huge um, study about you know, how to design programming languages and how to optimize them and how to use them and so forth. Um, so programming is a big component of computer science or CS, right? Uh, but it's not just programming. Um, there's a lot of theory, there's a lot of math, um, a lot of algorithm design that's not just programming, right? You can think about algorithms from a more theoretical point of view. Um, and I think it's a misconception in that, you know, if sort of a starting student, like a freshman, were to take an intro CS class and, you know, they like the ideas, but they're not a fan of the programming, um, they might get discouraged, they might drop out early. And I don't think, you know, that, that might be for the best, but in a lot of cases, that, you know, I, I think they might want to keep going a little bit. I, want to, I think they might want to see what else is out there in computer science that's not just programming, because it's, it's a lot more than that. So programming is really just a tool to implement a lot of these different ideas and algorithms in machine learning. It's not, it's not, it's not just computer science, right? Programming is not all that computer science is. Oh, so I guess there's just a lot more exploration that can be done when it comes to computer For science. Sure. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So in terms of that exploration, what is some advice that you may offer to people who may want to start diving into computer science or maybe even just coding? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we, we're lucky, I think, to live in an age where so much is available to us um, in open source or for free. Um, so even if you've never taken any formal classes in programming or CS, it's fairly easy to just go on Google, right? Go online and search for resources, search for introduction to Python or introduction to, um, say, primitive machine learning algorithms um, that only require a little bit of math. And there are videos and tutorials and all of that online. So, you know, even if if you haven't taken classes, if you're thinking of trying to just see what's out there, take some initiative, right? Just do some Google searches and see what pops up. Um, 
and there's so many great videos, so many great tutorials that have been written um, that are all sort of beginner friendly. Um, you know, maybe it's almost a little bit of a curse to how much that is out there, maybe <laughs> hard to choose, but I, I think that if a person is interested, there's really no excuse not to just get started right away, just because everything is, is available and pretty easy to find. Do you think that um, when you're trying to learn or start learning computer science or coding, is there a specific age um, that you should start? Like, is there a too young, too... I don't know if it's too old, but... <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I don't, yeah, I guess I'm not sure. Um, I've definitely heard uh, kids, you know, in, in, say, like, kindergarten, maybe, or, like, in elementary school who are starting to program, which sort of makes sense, I guess, if, you know, if kids are all comfortable using electronics and, and iPads and stuff nowadays, I wouldn't put it past them to start playing around with the code or thinking about ideas in programming. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I fully trust kids to be able to pick up these ideas um, as soon as they can start playing with electronics. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, um, that's actually a good point about is there an age that's too old to pick up these skills. Um, I, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I definitely see people who are trying to transition, for example, from one career to another, from one career into technology. Uh, and that is, you know, that's, I think that's definitely important. Especially as we transition in the current economy, um, but on the other hand, maybe there is sort of a limitation in that. Like you know, you're trying to learn a new language, for example, and a lot of research shows that that happens best when you're younger rather than older. Hopefully, that's not the case for for CS and for programming. But um, you know, if if there is any difficulty, I think uh, for older people, we need to put more resources into helping them make those transitions if they want to do that. Yeah, I like the um, comparison you drew to, like, I guess, regular language. Yeah. Because um, some people, I mean, that's there's a reason why, like, they call programming <laughs> languages. I don't know if it's, like, <laughs> if it's truly like that, but they obviously have yeah. some similarities. So, I guess now that we've talked about, like, just starting coding, um, do you have any advice for people who, I guess have taken like maybe AP comp sci or just a regular comp sci class and they want to further like pursue it as a career and or it's like a college major right do you have any general advice for them I think yeah so I think that's yes again we're sort of lucky um, to, to live in an age where so much information is available and CS is one of those fields that really benefits from this. So if you're someone who has taken some basic programming or taken some maybe AP computer science class in high school, you really do have a skill set that can be applicable um, pretty much immediately. Um, programming doesn't take really any resources. Uh, you don't need to buy special materials. You don't need to set aside a, you know, a specific space for, for programming, right? All you need is a computer and an internet connection to download some software. Um, so if you have some of those skills, if you have some of the knowledge from a first class or an AP class or something, um, you're sort of in a position where you can start uh, engaging in, say, an independent project. So again, this is where sort of the online information, open source information comes in, right? Um, you 
can further your knowledge. You can learn how to build a website. You can learn how to build a small little app. And these don't need to be, you know, groundbreaking things. These don't need to be like the new um, app that everyone's going to use or whatever. You could literally do something that um, an existing app also already does. You can literally build like a small little game that um, even if no one else is going to use, you know, that's something that you can use to practice your skills on. That's something you can use to um, place on your resume, for example, when you're applying for an internship. Um, it's some, it's, uh, it takes a lot of self-motivation, obviously, to pursue these things without like a class or a grade hanging over your back. <laughs> um, but it is definitely something that people who are serious about computer science and of course with the free time um, should consider doing because computer science is uh, very easy to do, uh, very resource light, um, so people should take advantage of that. Okay, yeah, I totally get that. So you've gone through that grad school um, path for computer science, so what is some advice that you would be, that you think that people should know about pertaining so to grad school? <laughs> yeah. So. yeah. So, um, in terms of grad school, I think there's general advice, not just for CS, but for grad school in general. Um, and one piece of advice is that students should try to reach out to professors or mentors early on. So, in college, you know, if you're taking intro classes, um, a lot of those intro classes might be really large classes, right? 100, 200, 300 people maybe. Oh my. So it's hard to get to know. Yeah, yeah. That, and, and certain places go even beyond that. So uh, it's hard to get to know your professors and maybe even TA. But if you're serious about sort of making, um, you know, if you're serious about going to grad school and making contributions in the field, uh, it's important to get those connections in. It's important to talk to professors or mentors to not only to get to know them and to like essentially ask for like a recommendation letter or something right but also to you know just get a sense of what the field looks like get a sense of um what things where things really stand from an expert's point of view so you know our professors will often have office hours they will often have maybe separate maybe like recitation sessions outside of the class outside of the lecture Take advantage of those. A lot of times those won't be mandatory, but those will be optional, and people won't really go to those. But if you're serious about, um, say, going to grad school or, like, making strides in the field, um, these are initiatives that you should take uh, so that you're perhaps or later on when you start those applications or when you apply for projects or internships. That's pretty good advice. <laughs> um, so I guess the last piece of advice Maybe uh, this is somewhat, I guess, somewhat recent. So AP scores came out yesterday. Um, and obviously AP CompSci is one of those. And I have a lot of friends who took AP CompSci. And like, I guess this is more for people who like maybe didn't do as well as they might have, but they like, I guess, really enjoy CompSci. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. Or I... Uh, I don't know if you can, you can answer that question or you can answer, talk about like AP Comsci in general and how that 
whether it's like close to uh, comp sci, like intro to comp sci in college, or whether that like I don't know something really. Yeah. <laughs> um. So I, you know, obviously, I haven't taken an AP class in a while, <laughs> but um, I think what I'm about to say would apply to most, if not all, AP classes, not just comp sci, and that. Uh, you know, these AP classes and AP exams are meant to simulate an intro college course. But I think for the most part, um, they probably do, maybe some of them do cover, do a good job in covering the, the intro course. I think for the most part, a lot of them aren't really even that close to the level of a, co- of a college intro course. Not that that's a bad thing, right? Because I think it's important to get that exposure to... Um, learning about or doing in college. But I wouldn't sweat it whether or not you do great or not do so great in the AP class. Um, because I think that in an actual college course, you maybe you learn some of the same material, but you know you learn it in a different way. Or you learn a lot more different material, or you learn more material. Um, I think that, you know, first of all, if you're doing great in the AP class, then that's, that's a good sign. And if you're interested in the stuff, then you should definitely continue with that subject. And maybe if you don't do so great, that's that's also fine. Um, I think it's it, it's it's an opportunity to get a first exposure to it, to the material. And once you're in college and you still want to pursue that subject, for example, comp sci, um, you know, and then you take their intro class, you might find it to be a different experience, right? You might have uh, some knowledge from the AP class now that you've been ex- you're exposing yourself to it for a second time. You might do better. Or, again, you might be learning things in a different way, that, in a way that works better for you. So I think that whether or not you know those AP classes turn out well for a potential student, I don't think that they should use that as like a litmus test to uh, establish whether or not they should continue with the field. I think they, they should really go where their passions lie and, you know, and try to give it their all in the first year or so of college before really deciding to change fields or to... Um, change majors. Hmm, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> um, well, that's all the questions that we have today for um, you, Tony. So Great. thank you for coming on. Thank you guys once again. Thank you so much. Um, uh, that's it for our afternoon tea session for our series six. Um, thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed.